Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet an Alberta man who's pounding the pavement on a quest to save his favorite donut from once again vanishing from Tim Horton's shelves. Find out why he thinks the walnut crunch is worth fighting for. Four by-elections across the country tonight in Quebec and Ontario, two in Manitoba. They should provide a snapshot of the political landscape as Parliament heads into the summer break. We look at what that snapshot is telling us. The Atlantic columnist David Frum joins me to talk about immigration and why governments struggle to tackle chronic housing shortages and affordability issues around housing. But first, it is a race against the clock as the Canadian and U.S. Coast Guards search for a submersible that went missing in the North Atlantic on Sunday. The Titan was carrying a pilot and four others on a dive to see the wreck of the Titanic, some 12,500 feet down when the ship that transported it to the location lost contact. The vessel has 96 hours of life support. What could the issues be? How difficult is the search and how challenging will an underwater rescue turn out to be? We find out. Well, let's begin tonight with this race against time in the North Atlantic. A major rescue operation, or at least a major search operation, is taking place off the coast of Newfoundland tonight. A submersible carrying five people down to view the wreck of the Titanic was reported missing last night. It's believed to be about 700 kilometers south of St. John's in a pretty remote part of the North Atlantic. We understand from the operator of the vessel that the vessel uh, was designed with a uh, uh, 96-hour sustainment uh, capability if there was an emergency on board. Right. Uh, In that case, that is uh, John Mauger. He is a rear admiral with the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, The Coast Guard confirmed they were searching for the vessel after a Canadian ship, the MV Polar Prince, lost contact with it during a dive last night. The vessel is operated by U.S.-based Ocean Gate Expeditions, which has been organizing tourist trips to the wreckage of the Titanic since 2021. Uh, The wreckage of the Titanic lies in two pieces, approximately 3,800 metres, 12,500 feet below the surface. The U.S. Coast Guard is leading the search, including with an Aurora military aircraft. The Canadian Coast Guard, of course, is also involved. The Canadians have had a P-8 submarine uh, search uh, aircraft uh, deploy as well and put uh, sonar buoys in the water uh, in attempt to uh, listen. We have to make sure that we're looking on both uh, the surface using aerial and and, uh, surface vessels, but then expanding into underwater uh, search as well. Right now, our capability is limited to uh, sonar buoys and listening for sounds. Again, uh, this submersible is said to have a life support system that lasts 96 hours. This is complex and, uh, you know, a, a very difficult search. And when when and if they do find the submersible, which, of course, everyone is hoping they do, if it happens to be underwater, it will be, even the rescue effort will be a complicated one. With more on this is Don Muth. He's a senior technical advisor with the International Submarine, with International Submarine Engineering Limited in Port Coquitlam. Don, thanks so much. Yes. Tell me a bit about about this vessel. Just what it would have been, how it would have been lowered, what how it moves, and and would it have any capability of coming back up on its own if there were an emergency? Um, it definitely does. It's um, it's a it has been classed, um, so that means it has the proper safety units, such as the ninety six hour life support. It also has drop weights. Um, so it can drop a weight if it's starting to lose buoyancy. Um, 
it runs with um, thrusters that actually fly like a helicopter, so you can fly it up, fly it down, forward, back, turn it in the water. It's a, uh, it's a, I've been following Ocean Gate for a while with their development of this, so it goes back uh, quite a number of years when they started working with NASA on their carbon fiber hull that this is made out of, which is unusual for a man's hull. Right. Uh, tell me, I mean, from what you've heard so far and with your familiarity with, with uh, the work that they do, what's happened here, do you think? We haven't heard a lot, so, you know, it's largely speculation at this point. I'm a little surprised that they don't have any contact with it. Um, almost all of these have a two different systems that you should be able to contact it with, an acoustic positioning system, which does a distance range depth from the ship to the submarine. And quite often it has emergency locator beacons, much like airplanes have if something goes wrong. So the, the Canadians putting in the sonar boys, they should be able to hear that if there's, anything to hear. And you, as you were saying, this is, this is a pretty durable piece of kit, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a very well-built submersible. It, it's very well-built, but it is also a little unusual in its construction materials. Um, I don't believe there's any other that's rated at that depth that's made with a carbon fiber pressure hull. So most of the time, submarines are designed very conservatively uh, because it's harsher to put something deep in the ocean than out in space. And so because of that, this is, this is not well known uh, what happens to these hulls under multiple pressure cycles, um, et cetera. So, right. Because this is this is deep, right? I mean, it it travels a, an awful long way down below to to see the wreck of the Titanic, which is, you know, it, it, I, I gather it can go about four thousand meters, and to see the Titanic, it has to go down about pretty close to that. Yeah, about thirty eight hundred to that, and um, you know, at least the initial design was for forty five hundred meters on the hull design, but um, yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, nobody really knows what happens yet. It's still early days. Right. right. I, yeah. I mean, I, I can hear just by listening. I mean, it's dist- for anyone who knows this stuff well, this is a pretty distressing situation, right? I mean, it goes without saying. It It is. Uh, you know, and it's not a real big um, industry that works with, you know, man subs. So, yeah, I, I was getting, you know, emails personal emails from people really early this morning um, right because it's uh it, like i say it's a small industry and we know lots of the people around the world in it and yeah it's very distressing it's uh it's you know highly concerning especially when they aren't hearing anything yeah that part i didn't i didn't know if that was if that was sort of typical or not uh but in, you're saying that just like a plane there would be a beacon right there should be a beacon and they should be able to hear it uh, because i would imagine they ha- must have a decent idea it had to be lowered right by a ship so they must have a decent idea of where it last was 
they should have a very good idea of where they, they launched it off the ship and they would have had a good mission plan of what they planned on doing, how long they were going to be down. Um, and quite typically, if they don't hear from them very regularly, it um, then they start to send out uh, all sorts of urgent messages around the world for help, which they did right. do. John Muth is with us this half hour, Senior Tec- Technical Advisor at International Submarine Engineering Limited in Port Coquitlam out here in BC. We're talking about the search for the Titan, a submersible last heard from about 24 hours ago. It was taking uh, four, it was five people in all, one uh, pilot and four others down to view the Titanic. Uh, that's about 700 kilometers off the coast of Newfoundland. So rough seas, as you may imagine, and uh, a remote area, which uh, challenges the the rescue op- or at least the search operation in, in a lot of ways. Don, what now? I mean, as you mentioned, they, they need to find, they, they we don't know whether they have some idea of where it is and are, are just aren't saying. Um, but for the time being, this is a complicated, given where it is, this is a complicated search uh, operation. It's definitely complicated. Um, they should have a fairly good idea of the general area that it's in. These are not high-speed vessels. These man, small manned submersibles, um, maybe two knots is typical is a very typical speed on them. So they're pretty slow. Um, so they wouldn't be a long ways from where they expect. But 700 kilometers out, that's a challenge to get equipment out there in a timely manner. Uh, I I know that some of the Canadian government uh, assets that can go out and do the search because we've built them and they were contacting us early this morning about what we could do to make sure that we could provide support for them as they're prepping up to go out and, and, you know, do a search. I'm not sure if they'll actually go out there, but they were, you know, given the notice that they should be ready to go and be able to go out and do the searching. And that's with a a autonomous underwater vehicle that we built for the Canadian government a few years ago that has good search capabilities. And it's um, it's rated at 5,000 meters, so the depth is no issue. Uh, but again, you have to get it out on station get it down and start searching and find it. And then you find it and now you have to try to recover it. And that's another big task that's uh, wow. pretty difficult in that water depth, but yeah. certainly nowhere near impossible. No, I, I mean, these, I didn't know these, I'd be, I'll be honest, I didn't really, I, I knew that people had done something like this. I didn't realize that it was comms that you could sort of pay to go do it. Uh, they must calculate some of these risks of, of something going wrong and just how far out they are when, when they go about planning these things, right? They would have to. They would have to be aware of the risks. Yeah, generally there's, there's an emergency plan. And again, I'm not totally familiar with what Ocean Gate has, mm-hmm. but as an industry standard, you would have a, a rescue and recovery plan wherever you're operating. That, you know, if you get, let's say, stuck on the bottom, that, you know, nobody's going to die. You're going to have a rescue ability before they run out of life support. Right. 
Which so, is 96 hours at this. We believe it's 96 hours. We don't know how much of that 96 hours. Uh, it's not clear how much of that 96 hours is, is left, I, I gather. I mean, it, it's been 24 hours since it was reported gone but or out of contact. But we really don't know exactly what's happened here. Uh, it, does any of the, I mean, I guess is the broadest question, given that you know this so well, does this, do the circumstances surprise you with which how this has happened? At least we don't know, but the, the idea it's kind of vanished off radar, which is, or just vanished, it's vanished, essentially. Yeah, it's, um, that, just vanishing, that's extremely concerning. That's what I'd have to say. Uh, normally, and one, it's very rare for a man sub to actually go down um, it has happened and we've been involved decades ago in one that went down and was recovered successfully but they knew right where it was right from the start right like they knew the they knew right where it sank and you know it was it was a matter of getting something down to get a line onto it so they could get it and recover it back to the surface and that still took a long time. And that was with, you know, running, you know, another submersible, flying it from Canada to England and getting it in a ship and getting off the shore of Ireland with it and, and getting down and actually attaching a line to it. And it was, it was a big international effort to, uh, you know, rescue that sub and the people that were in it. Yeah, well, if I hear you, if I hear you clear, then this this is a really tough one. I mean, we'll all we'll have to keep our fingers crossed that something has happened that's cut the communications, but they're otherwise okay, and it's just a question of finding them. But Don, thank you so much for your insight on this. Uh, if you know it as well as you do. Yes, well, you're welcome. It's a, it's something that we're um, we're all praying for them, and we're all ready to help wherever we can. Right. Don, thanks so much. Okay. You're welcome. Let's stay in Manitoba because, of course, it's been, you know, we, we on Friday and Thursday we spoke at length about this horrific tragedy that took place in Carberry. A group of seniors from the town of Dauphin was, were on their way to a casino near Carberry on a day trip when their bus was uh, collided with a, with a semi-truck uh, on the Trans-Canada Highway. It was crossing the Trans-Canada Highway when it was struck by this truck. And it's obviously that, you know, the questions are still out there. The investigation still continues. Uh, everyone's hoping beyond hope that the 10 who survived will survive. Um, and, the, you know, and, and they're trying to plan in Dauphin for the funerals and the services and so on for the 15 that didn't. I mean, keep in mind, we spoke to the mayor last Thursday night. This is a town where everyone knows someone. Everyone knows everyone. And everyone is no more than, you know, one degree removed from tragedy here. So you can imagine just how devastating that's been. But for the rest of, you know, if you look outside of just that individual incident, it's raised a lot of questions about these intersections. You know, if you've been on that Trans-Canada Highway across the prairies and in other parts of the country, I mean, it is a lifeline, right? Everything moves up and down that highway. But everything comes in and out of that highway as well. And a lot of times uh, those intersections are at grade. They're not full on. Uh, intersection. I mean, there's no lights or anything. There's no underpasses. There's no roundabouts. I mean, these are just, you know, four-way intersections. And that can be dangerous, right? Especially if, you, if you're if you not used to it, if you're rushing, if you got the light, light in your eyes, who knows? I mean, if you make a mistake 
and we make mistakes all the time behind the wheel, right? It can be a really devastating thing to have happen, as we've seen here. Now, police say they have dash cam footage that shows the bus was crossing the highway when it went into the path of the truck. Um, Rob Lassen is in charge of major crimes at the RCMP, and he says this has been a unique situation. All the witnesses were in the bus, and a lot of them are in trauma right now that we can't talk to. So we have to rely on uh, forensic investigations, mechanical analysis of the vehicle, and, and things like that. And that's why it's taking so long. Normally, we would have more answers because we would have very focused witness accounts. Right. And Mounties say they have sp- yet to speak to the bus driver as he's still receiving care in hospital. They did speak with the truck driver uh, late last week, including uh, getting that dash cam footage from the vehicle itself. As I was mentioning, he was carrying a group of seniors from Dauphin to that casino. Uh, the Dauphin Senior Centre, where the trip originated and a lot of people had connections to it, uh, was, was you know, there are bouquets of flowers out front. Uh, this is a town in mourning. Mayor David Boziak, who we spoke to last week, uh, was speaking today, saying the city is quiet and somber. Somber, quiet. Um, I think people are just trying to figure things out. They're determining what their next steps are as, as we're trying to determine what our next steps will be. But I think there's just a general sadness. Right. Manitoba's premier spoke about this today. Heather Stephenson says her government is waiting for police to finish their investigation into the crash uh, before conducting a safety review of the intersection where it took place. She says experts will be brought in if necessary, but doesn't want to rush the ongoing uh, probe because of the other investigation going on. Uh, And she does say that the internal review of this crash, that any details will be released once they are available. Here is what she had to say. We will allow the RCMP to go through uh, the process and we have to respect that process. I know there's going to be a lot of uh, questions out there that we will endeavor to get the answers to in due course. Uh, What I will say is that after any accident or incident on our highways, there is an internal review that takes place. So that review is taking place right now. Right. Heather Stephenson there, Manitoba's premier. It does raise questions about all those intersections, though. There are so many roads leading in and out of that Trans-Canada Highway as it winds its way across Canada. You can't obviously fix them all, but can should this be a situation where we're paying a lot more attention, attention to safety around those intersections? Raheem Dilgir is a road safety engineer with TransSafe Consulting Limited. He's the past president of the Canadian Association of Road Safety Professionals, and he joins me now. Raheem, thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Good to be with you. This is, uh, you know, obviously when these tragedies uh, happen, you know, there, there is a lot of investigating going on. But clearly those at-grade crossings that, that, that you know, exist right across the country are back in the spotlight. What was your first reaction when you saw, start to hear about what had happened there? Well, naturally, I was, uh, I was uh, horrified. It's always uh, such a major tragedy when uh, there's uh, any life lost on our, our roads. And uh, in this case, uh, unfortunately, several lives. So our, our hearts of uh, the ro- whole road safety community really go out to the uh, the victims and their and their families. That was my first thought. Uh, yeah, I think everyone felt the same way. And, and then you start to look at, well, what could have gone wrong? And you realize that, I mean, I was on Google Maps looking around that that intersection between Highway 5 and the Trans-Canada. And, and it's a complicated one. I mean, I mean not, not overly complicated, but you can certainly see where something could go wrong. 
Yeah, well, you know, Ben, there, there's like you said, there's hundreds of these types of, if not thousands of these types of locations across the country, you know, where two, uh, you know, major roadways come together at grade. If the, you know, the higher the speed of those crossing roadways and the higher the traffic volumes, you know, the more likely something is to to go wrong. Of course, you you wish and you plan that nothing does, but uh, the probabilities say that uh, once in a while there is going to be something tragic at, uh, at one of these locations. We've looked at um, j- just how dangerous are they? Because I, I realize that, that um, you know, that their individual provinces do surveys of their roads is going to be an investigation into the safety in and around this particular intersection now, obviously. Um, but just how much of an issue are these at-grade crossings, especially when it comes to, like in this case, two highways meeting? Yeah, there's definitely an inherent risk, uh, as, as I mentioned. Uh, but, you know, in particular, at this type of location where it's on a divided highway, there's the added complication of having to kind of look at if, if you're if you're the vehicle on the stop controlled street, having to look for gaps in high speed traffic in both directions and both multi lane, um, if I'm uh, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. on the Trans-Canada Highway. So it's 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 already a kind of a complex driving task. And then on top of that, with the with the median, the relatively narrow median between the two uh, directions, you have to kind of make an assessment as to whether your, your vehicle could fit there or whether you feel safe stopping there to kind of uh, take it as a sep- two separate uh, crossings, uh, essentially. But if, uh, if you're a truck or if you're not sure whether you fit, then you try to do it all at once, which is... Uh, as I said, quite challenging, not only to look at the two directions of traffic, but to see if there's any other uh, activity going on in that median opening. Right. And I can imagine challenging for one, for drivers who may not be familiar with it. And two, maybe in some ways, because when you think about the direction the driver would be looking at as they crossed the first set of lanes westbound, they'd be looking out their window directly at the traffic. When they get to the to the eastbound lanes on the right-hand side, they're actually, in the case of a bus or something, they're actually having to look out quite a distance through the, through the windows, right? I mean, through the doors, right, to see what's coming. So for an unfamiliar driver, it could it could create some challenges when it comes to to, uh, to being able to judge just how fast something's coming at you. You're right. Absolutely. It's, it's not, and it's not only the familiarity, it's even one's motor skills. I mean, uh, if somebody's uh, has a slight injury or as we age, it becomes uh, more difficult for us to even move our necks. And in this case, if you're having to look one way and then quickly turn 180 degrees to look the other way and then, you know, make, then make that assessment, there's, there's both a physical and a cognitive demand on, uh, on the driver to, to, to safely negotiate these types of maneuvers. You'll know this well, though. I mean, understandably, these intersections, even though as the, the amount of traffic on these roads has grown uh, significantly over many, many years, uh, these roads have simply evolved the way they always were, right? I mean, these were roads that where they crossed each other, period. And there was yeah. there was very little thought of, of, of investing to build uh, different ways of doing it, underpasses and so on. Yes, you know, when many of, uh, well, well, when much of the kind of the highway network in Canada was built, it was several decades ago when there was uh, a lot fewer vehicles on the road and and they couldn't go as fast uh, before as you know the the way that they've made vehicles in the last few decades certainly uh, perhaps you know they they were more appropriate for that time than they than they are now standards uh, for the road authority such as a province you know uh, have largely remained the same as well so and these intersections are kind of built to a certain standard uh, which is now an old standard and uh we needs to we need to evolve 
our policies so and, and our standards so that we can uh you know recognize the risks that are involved and and evolve with the uh with the changing demands i know that in the wake of something as awful and tragic as this that clearly we'll be talking about the danger that these intersections pose but in regular conversation as road safety experts how often do at-grade crossings come up as as something that needs to be looked at or needs to be improved? Um, quite regularly, Ben. You know, I've done several hundreds of studies uh, over my uh, career, um, over 20-something years, and many of them are. The types of intersections in rural areas where you have a stop control on a side street and you have a, a major street, either that's uh, like a highway that's either divided or not divided, they are particularly prone to high severity collisions because of the configuration. Uh, when one vehicle's crossing or crossing then to turn left and then somebody comes from the side, it's a side impact collision, which are uh, probably the worst in terms of severity because it could collide with the driver's side or the passenger side if there's a passenger there and uh you know above a certain speed it's quite likely that uh the occupants will suffer an injury or worse Raheem Delgier is with us this half hour road safety engineer with TransSafe Consulting and past president of the Canadian Association of Road Safety Professionals I don't imagine it's it's economically viable to uh, to try to build separation at all these intersections it just wouldn't happen I suppose they may at some if they're deemed to be particularly dangerous but there must be other ways that they can try to make these try to bring them up I and mean, you said earlier these were built to a standard uh, that may harken back to a different time how do we make them better you know, there's a there's a few approaches. You you've you, you've alluded to the ultimate solution, which was to uh, which would be to build a, an interchange or overpass. The criteria, given given the high cost, the criteria is quite strict. Uh, that there has to be a certain amount of traffic, a certain speed of roadways, um, you know, high speed roadways, and perhaps a, a, a already a history of collisions happening there. Uh, but other than other than that, there are some, I would say, let's call them geometric changes, you know, fairly significant physical changes that could be considered. They all are also relatively high cost, but not as high cost as building a, a, a separate structure above above one of the roadways. So one of those is to widen the median. So widening the median would make it more of a formal two stage crossing traffic coming from the side street would only need to look in one direction at a time and then uh, have a chance to stop and 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 collect themselves before looking into looking at the second direction so widening that median so that it could accommodate the the, the size of trucks that, uh, that do try crossing there uh would be uh, one way uh, of course that's costly because it would require widening the the highway uh, another another um kind of treatment that's been used uh more commonly in the U.S., but I, I think it's uh, it, it's I think there are select locations in Canada, or maybe now is the time to talk more about it. Is 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 uh, preventing that crossing movement by instead requiring those vehicles on the side street to turn right, do a U-turn uh, in that divided median, uh, turn around at a safer location where it's not complicated by all of the other maneuvers that happen at uh, major intersections. So these are sometimes referred to as J-turn intersections, and they're quite common in uh, in some of the, the U.S. states. And basically what it does is, although it is, you know, it's also difficult to change lanes and get over and then do, do that maneuver uh, in the median, it basically reduces the chance of that catastrophic collision, that, that right turn, uh, that right angle T-bone type uh, collision that uh, is most likely to result in severe injury or fatality. Roundabouts are becoming more common in Canada. You've probably seen them around in, in your jurisdiction, uh, but even in rural areas. 
Uh, so they would require significant speed reduction uh, because you travel through the roundabouts at a, at a slow speed. But the benefit of a roundabout is, of course, that, you know, you do slow vehicles down. You know, if there was to be a collision in a roundabout, it would be at not only lower speed, but at an angle where it's more of a side swipe or a rear end type collision and they're much simpler because all you have to do is look for one movement to, and, and yield to uh you know one stream of traffic from 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 the left the roundabouts are becoming a little more common in these rural areas and uh, they might be helpful in this type of context as well yeah i remember them well from living in the uk and there are some uh here here where i am in in uh in bc i, I gather there's there are, are, why haven't we used them more are they difficult to plow is, is there something about the about the way they interact with winter and salting and all that stuff that make them a bit a bit complicated I think there's a few things, and that's certainly one of them. The second thing is they're not uh, the most friendly device for pedestrians or cyclists. Right. Now, in a rural area like this, that may not be the primary consideration anyway. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, you know, another reason maybe uh, road authorities hesitate is because people just don't like them and find it challenging to use them. And I guess there are there is a chance that, you know, immediately after a roundabout is introduced, it could be used the wrong way. People could go the wrong way around the circle, for example. But, you know, by and large, in most cases, urban and rural, roundabouts significantly reduce uh, severe injuries and fatalities. So they're a good solution to, to consider. I guess part of the issue here, too, is that, I mean, the Trans-Canada, that's it, right? If you're, if you're hauling goods a long, long way, you don't want to be stopping every 30, you know, every 500 meters for a light or for a roundabout or so on. There is sort of that, that expediency side of it, but this is a reminder of what the consequences can be when that goes horrifically or tragically wrong. You're right. You know, Ben, in, in, uh, in, in the past, most decisions have been made based on, you know, what's the most efficient way of getting around or how to provide local access to you know the the, the neighborhoods uh, or areas that you need to go or come from but there's increasingly a movement towards considering safety as the very first and top consideration and it's it's encompassed by this movement called uh, vision zero which uh, many countries in Europe adopted a couple of decades ago and now more and more jurisdictions in Canada have been adopting and that basically makes a clear statement that it is not acceptable for somebody to um, die or get seriously injured on our public road system uh, for having made an error because we are humans and we make errors. They sh shouldn't have to pay for it with death. So uh, we uh, it, it, it takes a whole new approach to the whole design and planning of our road networks and, you know, including getting rid of situations like this. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there are the few others that I've seen are sort of just temporary, more sort of temporary things are like flashing stop signs and just more awareness that you're pulling up at something like that you're approaching something like this. Because even even if you've been through it a few times, I'd imagine I, I don't know enough about the driver in this case, either driver, um, but being ma made very aware that you're approaching a dangerous area mightn't mightn't be a bad idea either. Uh, for sure. Um, you know, where, where you can't make any, you know, significant physical uh, changes, then you look at those sort of lower cost treatments. And one of those is, you know, really emphasizing the existing traffic control, uh, as well as providing warning uh, from all directions that there is a, you know, a major intersection coming here. So there are things that you can do both on the stop control street, such as you said, flashing stop signs, as well as large stop signs, signs in advance, rumble strips, things like that and on the major street providing uh also things like beacons and also street lighting uh if there isn't uh, any there or if it's inadequate street lighting can always be uh, upgraded 
And, uh, you know, one other s solution that could be uh, th considered as a traffic signal, although that is a little bit more appropriate for urban situations, because right. there is a risk that in these higher speed situations that somebody may, uh, may, may run the red light and then, you know, have a similar type of consequence than what we saw. Well, Raheem, thank you so much for your time on this. It's my pleasure. As we talked about on Friday, the federal statistics agency, StatsCan's population clock, hit 40 million uh, on Friday afternoon. 40 million of us now in Canada. The rate of growth stands at 2.7%. Uh, that's the highest annual growth rate since 1957. Can you believe that? When Canada was in the middle of the post-war baby boom, says StatsCan. And the population grew by a record 1.5, 1.05 million, rather, last year. 96% of the rise was due to international migration, says StatsCan. Um, our population topped 30 million in 1997. Here we are at 40 million in 2023. We could reach 50 million as soon as 2043 in 20 years if current trends continue. From an economic perspective, it's been a benefit. We, I mean, it's it's certainly we need people to feel work. We need uh, you know, birth rates are not replacing, and we need people to fill jobs. And they also link us to economies around the world. Right, it's part of who Canada is. Um, but it also presents some challenges, particularly with housing. On Friday, uh, we spoke with Matt Simiatiki, who's a professor of geography and planning uh, at the University of Toronto. Here's what he had to say. When it comes to the challenges, housing is really the big obvious one. I mean, we're in a housing crunch and this really is a, a need. It just highlights the necessity for us to be building many more units at all different types of uh, price ranges to make sure that there's affordable places to live and, and great communities so that we can continue to be uh, a wonderful place to live. Now, this has been an issue during Toronto's mayoralty by-election, of course, and that's something you know, Atlantic columnist David Frum, you may, you'll probably know the name, still spends a lot of time in Toronto, grew up in Toronto, so he's been looking at it through a bit through the lens of that uh, by-election, but also more generally as to why governments, whether they be federal, provincial, or municipal across the country, have had such a hard time coping with the housing crunch. David Frum joins me now. David, thank you so much. Welcome back. Pleasure. Really interesting fact. I mean, I don't know how accurate the StatsCan population clock is, but Canada hit 40 million people, 40 billion people rather, 40 billion rather last, uh, late last week. And it, uh, it comes with a whole bunch of uh, both pros and cons, I guess. I've heard you talk recently about, about housing and how what a big deal housing is, both politically and socially, demographically and so on. Uh, what was your take on, on hitting 40 million and these immigration targets that seem to be very ambitious? Well, if you're a government that is um, going to run these numbers. And if there is a conscious policy to double and double again the immigration intake, knowing that the way the modern job market works and those jobs are going to be created, the jobs of those 40 million people are going to be created in Vancouver and Calgary, maybe Edmonton, Toronto and the GTA, Ottawa. And those are the, that's probably two thirds of the job of, the, of net new jobs in Canada in those handful of metropolitan areas. You'd better have a serious housing plan for the new coming people. And if you don't, you're going to create the kind of crises that we that we have seen in Canada over the past decade. This idea that you're gonna run a, on the one hand, a bring the world to Canada policy, and on the other, make it difficult to build policy. How could it not be seen from the beginning that this was a formula for tremendous social distress? And we are seeing, I mean, one of the issues that comes up so often is, is the fact that in Canada itself, so many newcomers go to the same few places, and those are the places already experiencing uh, acute housing issues. W where is the problem? Because you would think that anybody looking out at, at the landscape would know this was an issue, yeah. and yet here we are. 
Right. Well, there, this seems to be a worldwide trend. And it may be with Zoom, the technology we're using today, this trend may be about to change. But it has certainly been true in the 21st century and especially over the past decade and a half um, that job creation is concentrated in a few knowledge centers in each country. If it's Britain, uh, the vast majority of the country's net new private sector jobs are created within 50 miles of London. The, the French experience the same thing with a couple of major centers generating most of the net new jobs. Uh, Germany is a little bit more distributed than that. The United States is a little bit more distributed than that. Canada is like Australia. Um, there, there are a few major job creation centers. That's where the jobs get created. And that's been true for a decade and a half. So that's something you know when you're making your immigration policy. And and there's there's no point saying, well, let's have a, a policy of wishing that jobs will be created in smaller centers the, the way they were in you know, the 19th century. It's not the 19th century. So I, it just has been a, a policy out of sequence. And the federal system makes it worse because the federal government can admit the newcomers and receive the votes of newcomers and the appreciation of the newcomers' families. The question of how housing gets built is not fundamentally a federal question. So the federal government can hit the accelerator and leave it to somebody else to work the steering wheel. And what do you make of the response so far? Because you see lots of varied responses on, on what, the, what the solution is here, both at the municipal level, at the provincial level, uh, and at the federal level. We've Pierre Polyev has come out and sort of talked about withdrawing or withholding transfer payments to provinces who don't help accelerate building. Uh, and yet none of it feels like it's actually going to solve the issue. I mean, I, I live in a city like Victoria, where the problem is they just don't build fast enough and they don't build enough that everybody else can afford. It's it's too few. And, you know, and, and it feels like that problem is not going to solve itself in the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, you have to build a lot. So I think uh, some people carry around in their minds a model of the housing market where it, it comes pre-divided in cost. There's affordable, there's expensive, there's luxury. And, and they say, well, why don't we build more affordable housing and less of other kinds of housing? And markets just don't work that way. The way you get more affordable housing is you build lots and lots and lots of new construction, lots of it. And then the previously new construction, that becomes a little bit less desirable. And the next generation after that, that becomes less desirable. And the way you get affordable housing is not building purpose-built affordable housing. It's through this constant renewal of the housing stock. But that means you have to build a lot. There is no way around a, a country of 40 million people with four, five, six major job creation centers without enormous amounts of housing construction in those major job creation centers. And if Canadians don't want that degree of house building, if they don't want to see skyscrapers going up in all over Victoria and Vancouver and the GTA and Ottawa, then they need to rethink their immigration intake. It, you, it, the, the policy has to add up. And the fact that one is run by the federal government and the other by the provincial governments and the cities doesn't make the disconnect any less oppressive for the people who find themselves priced out of their towns. And you've talked about this in, in relation to the to the Toronto mayor to a by-election that's coming up a week from today, actually. Progressives on one side and the way they view housing has always seemed this idea that it, that it could somehow be like health care, you mentioned, is unaffordable. Unfortunately, I mean, in, in, a, in a utopia, it's perfect if the government could build everyone a house, right? But they can't. Well, the progressives have um, a, a number of conceptual barriers to thinking clearly about housing. First is they love process. They want to have more consultation, more community involvement. But of course, process adds time and time is money. If you add process that make, means that it takes six more months to build a project, whether it's low rise or high rise to market, 
that that gets factored into the price. The uh, project that takes six months longer is just going to be more expensive than one that takes six months less long. So the consultation costs money and, and they want more consultation. The second thing is that they do have at the back of their minds this idea, why can't housing be a social good like healthcare is in Canada? And there, there are a number of reasons for that. But maybe the most important reason is most of us would prefer not to consume our fair share of healthcare. Right. <laughs> I mean, if I could say to you, Ben, here's, here's your, you're going to pay your taxes uh, for all your life to age 90 and never see the inside of a hospital. Do you feel cheated? So, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah, I agree. I'm real good. Yeah. Let somebody else have my share. Take all the healthcare you want. I'd prefer to have none. Thank you. I mean, God may or may not uh, allow that, but uh, we all want less. The, the smallest portion of healthcare we can get, except for you know a few people who maybe a kind of kind of hypochondriacal. Most of us. But with housing, we all want all we can get. We want more. We want it more luxurious. We want it more modern. That's not a critical thing. Of course we want that. I want it. You want it. We all want it. So there is no limit to the demand. The only constraint on demand is price. And if you break the price mechanism, then you have infinite demand chasing dwindling supply. David Frum is with us this half hour. We're talking about housing in Canada, immigration and so on, how they're all linked. Uh, David, when you look at this politically, you can see the Conservatives are making a big play for this in Canada to try to attract some of those much needed big city votes that they've had so much trouble attracting, especially in, you know, in the GTA, Montreal um, and the lower mainland of late. Do you think any party is, is ringing, ringing the right note right now when it comes to housing? It's a hard problem to do politics on. Because the, the voters want contradictory things. And that, again, that's not a criticism. It's just human nature. So, of course, we want housing to be more abundant. But if you're already in the housing market, and conservative party voters tend to be people who are already in the housing market, then you're a beneficiary of the housing shortage. Your house is, is increasing in real terms. At other historical periods, before the 1970s, um, housing tended not to get more valuable over time. Uh, in fact, in many places, housing became less valuable over time because the buildings fall apart. What makes your house seem to be getting more valuable is the rise of the land underneath your dwelling. The dwelling itself is a is a depreciating asset like, like any other built artifact that human beings make. So a lot of the conservative voters want to see their house price stay high and continue to rise at the same time as they, of course, want more housing abundance. So you have to break with some vested interests. And it's not all just wicked landlords who perversely provide apartments for people, he said sarcastically, that a, a lot of us are implicated. We own a house and we enjoy it when our house goes up in value. And we don't think too hard about the people we are pricing out of the market. One of the things that, that comes to mind here, and because they're all interlinked, we worry about inner, inner cities and crime, inner cities and, and you know mental health and addiction. A lot of it's all tied into the housing issue, right? Rents are too high. People can't afford a roof over their heads. It seems like all these social issues that are sort of centerpiece in the Toronto mayoralty election, by-election, and we assume will be centerpiece certainly in Pierre Polyev's campaigning so far, is this idea of crime and social unrest and housing and affordability. Uh, when you tie them all together, the one thing I worry about is that the, the conversation on immigration will change. Someone's going to make that link. In fact, if you already have, that somehow immigration's too high without a plan, then we start to get into some, to some potentially unpleasant territory. Well, um, let me just say, I, I'm not sure I agree with you that I link the problems of urban disorder, right. the, 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 the cost of rent, that young people can't start a family, young people stay with their parents longer than they'd like, you know, people commuting for 60, 75 minutes at, uh, each way each day, they're victims of high housing costs. But the tent cities in our cities are, are products of a drug problem. And you could cut the right. price of by a third. I don't think you'd make an impact on, on that problem. That what we're seeing here is 
the Canadian echo of the massive explosion of drug addiction in the United States. We're all familiar with the opioids, the meth. Uh, that disables people, locks them out of the job market. They're driven out of the job market by addiction issues and then the aftermath of addiction and then getting onto the path of criminality and worsening mental illness. But I, I think that that is, that's a fiction that is told by some people in municipal politics. Well, that the, the people in tent cities are unhoused. And if you could just build them a house, right. their problems would go away. They are, they're not in a tent because they can't afford the rent. Uh, they're in a tent because other things are going on in their lives that mean that they can't hold a job. And therefore, whatever the rent is, they couldn't pay it. I guess the people we should be worried about then are the ones we don't see, right? The ones living, I mean, I've done interviews with people living in their cars now because they can't afford the rents in the places they live, even though they are, they do have jobs. I, I guess when you look ahead, if we're going to continue to take more immigration, we're going to need a real big housing plan. And it doesn't feel like we have one yet. We, we, that's right. You have the, the two things have to come into sequence. Um, and by the way, it doesn't mean these are not just like two switches, one on, one off. These are dials. If Canada finds itself unable to build enough new housing, then you slow the immigration dial. That doesn't mean you turn the dial to zero. The Justin Trudeau government doubled immigration over the levels of the Harper government, which in turn had doubled it over the levels that had been prevailing in the 1990s. So you can do you can undouble or you can make the hard choices to get new construction accelerated in the places where the jobs are. Um, and there's no point saying, let's change the way the job market works and build houses where the jobs aren't. Um, government is not that powerful and government shouldn't be that powerful. Government, government has to um, enable uh, the construction of new housing, including rental housing, where the, where the jobs are. And that means one more thing. Governments in Canada have been reimposing rent controls that were rolled back with such difficulty in the 1990s. And people have to lose this idea that the reason rent is high is because landlords are greedy and landlords somehow need to be stopped. Landlords operate in the same market as every other economic actor. They have costs. If the rents don't cover costs, the rental housing is not provided. It doesn't state, it doesn't become, you can lot freeze the existing stock of rental housing and, and basically transfer the money from landlords to tenants, but no one will then volunteer to be a landlord and there will be no additional landlord space. And because because of this problem of needing to add and add and add, you weigh on landlords. It, uh, you don't get new rental housing. David Frum, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Where this is the last week that Parliament in Ottawa is sitting before they all scatter for the summer break and most people stop paying attention to federal politics altogether as the barbecue circuit starts. There's always work going on, just not as much, uh, not as much attention paid. So these four by-elections that are being held across the country tonight will offer us a little bit of a snapshot of what's going on in federal politics. Not entirely, they aren't the four greatest writings uh, for this, but they will give us a little bit of a snapshot heading into the summer break about what the federal political situation is like. The polls have closed. We're getting results already. Um, a couple of ridings are were pretty. They were pretty easy to predict going on. I mean, there's a few really interesting subplots uh, that we'll talk about. But in Notre Dame de Grasse, Westmount or NDG Westmount, as I would call it, having grown up there. Um, Anna Ganey is running for the Liberals. That's Mark Garneau's old writing. That's a shoe-in. That's one they used to call it like 831 on election night. You know, it was always a pretty easy one. There's a couple of interesting battles. Uh, Oxford in Ontario is an interesting one. That's a long-time conservative writing, but the conservative former MP who's resigned or retired actually ended up supporting the Liberal in this one, and it's pretty close tonight. It's The conservatives are still out ahead, but it's pretty close. Winnipeg South Centre is um, that's where Liberal MP Jim Carr passed away. His son is running. Ben Carr is running and winning at this point. And then kind of the, kind of the fact 
fascinating one is Portage Lisger, where Maxime Bernier, believe it or not, who doesn't have much of a many roots in Manitoba, he's running there for the People's Party um, because they did really well in the last election. So he's trying to see if they could make more inroads there in Candace Bergen's old seat. She was the interim leader of the Conservatives, of course, before she uh, she stepped down as well, or she quit. Uh, the, he's being hammered tonight, as far as I can tell. But we could talk about all this stuff. Uh, it's always great to have Danielle Bailon, who's a professor of political science at McGill University, uh, with us. Danielle, thanks for staying up late on this by-election night. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to uh, talk to you about this. Yeah, let's start close to you because NDG Westmount. I mean, you know, you, I, I sometimes I wonder why people even campaign in that riding because it's always such yeah. a, a liberal shoe in. But Anna Ganey is yeah. someone who Canadians may hear a bit more about as long as this liberal government's in power. That's right. So she's a, she's a liberal insider. She's a policy wonk. She's also the daughter of Bob Ganey, the former hockey right. player. <laughs> and yes. So um, she, yeah, he, she won. And, you know, around uh, 50% of the votes. I mean, it's, uh, um, as, as you said, maybe a bit less than that, but it's not as... You know, as much as Marc Garneau, Marc Gar- uh, uh, um, Garneau won... Um, uh, the, um, the the writing last time with almost fifty fifty four percent of the vote. Right. So now it's a bit lower for the liberals. You know, in in um, in Quebec among anglophones, especially in Montreal, you have some uh, criticisms toward uh, Bill C thirteen over um, uh, the modernization of the Official Languages Act that was just right. um, adopted very recently by the Senate and before that by the House. And also what's interesting about that writing, so yes, the Liberals are winning, not a victory that's as strong as what they saw in the past under, with Marc Garneau in 2021 and before that, but the interesting subplot here, you mentioned subplots earlier, yes. uh, is that the, the co-leader of the Green Party of Canada, Jonathan Pedneau, uh, is running in that writing. Uh, right now he's in fourth place, but uh, very close to uh, the... Just though. Just, yeah, so we, yeah. you know, we, yeah. It's so the interesting, ra- the, the, yeah. Yeah, the race for second, uh, Jonathan Pedno. I mean, right. again, I mean, they, these, these, the other parties all have like 14.4, 14.2, and Anagani right now is at 48.7. So, yeah. of course, if you grew up in Montreal, you can't not be a big Bob Ganey fan. So there, uh, there That's it is. That's right. Uh, I, I guess the one, I mean, we'll talk a bit about, uh, we'll let Oxford play out a little bit more because it's yeah. still, it's still pretty close. Uh, but, but, um, Portage Lisger was was such a fascinating one because yes. there was this incredible subplot going on, this fight. I don't know if you've been following it on social media between yes. the Conservatives and the People's Party because Maxime Bernier, Manitoban that he is, of course yes. not, is out there running for them because they did well in the last election. But he's getting he's getting trounced tonight. That's an interesting yes. subplot, Danielle. Yes, I'm not surprised, but uh, you know, but the thing though, what is uh, very bad for him, uh, his personal image, is that he's actually in terms of percentage points, is lower than what the, the candidate for the People's Party did at the 2021 uh, uh, general election in that riding. So uh, this is, um, you know, uh, uh, when you, you get less than 20% of the votes, and uh, the, in 2021, the People's Party got uh, more than 21% of the votes so, uh, in that riding. So it's not good for Bernie's image or for the People's Party. Um, and yeah, we expected the Brandon Leslie, the conservative uh, candidate, to win quite easily. But cer- certainly, um, you know, uh, 
the gap between him and Bernier is, 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 is very large. Um, and, um, and so it's not good for, you know, I mean, of course, Bernier was a parachute candidate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, of, 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 of the first order, of the first order, whatever you can use the expression you want. But yeah. um, you know, he's, he's, I'm not. You know, this this is not good news for his party or for his leadership. No. And, yeah, you're at 22% in the last federal election, 18.2% right now. I mean, at 63%. And he's the leader of the party, so not good. He is. Now, one of the things that really was was quite – what I thought was a really interesting subplot here was that when Pierre Poliev won leadership of the Conservative Party and some of the lines that he's taken, part of what they were up to – was trying to very much get rid of the PPC as a threat to their right flank. Yeah. And it feels like this by-election may have proven that that, so far at least under Pierre Polyev, that has been a resounding success. That's right. So this is, of course, the difference between having uh, Erin O'Toole as a leader, especially what he did during the 2021 campaign, uh, aiming more towards the center, center-right. Um, and and I, I, so I think what different between now and 2021 is a different leader, but also, you know, we don't talk much about the pandemic and public health measures and so forth like we did uh, back then, and that helped this debate over public health measures that first helped the People's Party of Canada, but I think vis-a-vis the conservatives, but since the, uh, um, you know, the, the advent of Pierre Poilievre as the leader of the party uh, is, is, uh, is a success in terms of becoming the leader of the party, uh, his election as leader, uh, I, I think, you know, the, it's, it's harder for the People's Party of Canada. And we saw that uh, uh, this evening uh, in this riding where they did exceptionally well in 2021, Portage Lisgar. It's one of the ridings where they did the best in terms of not being close to win. They were still far from, you know, from, from victory. But they, um, in terms of, you know, get, getting more than 20% of, of popular support uh, was, was quite a strong performance for them. And now the leader of the party himself cannot even match that score, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years later. So that's not a good sign for him or for his party. Yeah, in a by-election, no less, which tends to sort of favor uh, right. a, a, a bit on, a bit on the upset side, right? Yeah. Um, if if uh, I, I guess what we could we can jump around to the other ones. Winnipeg South Center uh, is 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 a liberal, been quite a strong liberal yes. uh, uh, seat, and Ben Carr, who is the son of Jim Carr, the late Jim Carr, is winning that yeah. one quite easily. So I mean, a lot of what we thought was going to happen tonight is in fact happening. The one place where it's gotten really interesting tonight yeah. is this riding of Oxford in Ontario because um, that is a conservative seat, has been for a very long time. Uh, but there was a real battle going on there. And it's pretty – I mean, the conservatives look like they should yeah. be able to win tonight. Yeah. But it's close. It's awfully close. The liberal candidate's only about 1,000 votes uh, back right now with about right. 71% of the votes counted. Yeah, so that's related, I think, to the internal politics of uh, the Conservative Party of Canada in that specific riding. So – uh, you know, we talk about carpet, uh, carpet bagger or parachute candidate. I mean, it's not as bad in this case as Maxime Bernier running in, in southern Alberta. But still, um, if you look at um, uh, the... Arpan Kana, yeah, who, yeah, um, so you, yeah, who helped you, probably have some about leadership. The, uh, yeah. Conservative candidate who is very close to uh, Pierre Poilier and his team, he was running or, or at least he was playing a role in running uh, Pierre Poilier's leadership uh, leadership uh, uh, campaign in, in Ontario, 
and um, you know Arpenkana ran in uh, Brampton North just in 2019. So again, he's perceived as a, an outsider, really, uh, not not someone who's well rooted in the riding, and um, and you know what happened is that there was a. Uh, the, if you take the riding association, the conservative riding association, the president and the vice president resign, <laughs> and there was a lot of um, you know debate over this. And of course, on the top of this, you had the the, the, the previous MP uh, who was uh, you know was there for uh, for a long time, Dave McKenzie, whose daughter <laughs> was also running to uh, to uh, replace him. Uh, um, uh, as the conservative uh, candidate, uh, well, uh, you know she uh, she of course lost, um, and and he decided to support the liberal uh, candidate in he that did. race. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, I think that's why the conservatives are not doing so well. Is because this internal fight within the riding association and with the former MP, conservative MP, who supported uh, uh, the liberal opponent of uh, his successor, <laughs> but not so. So, so it's uh, it, it's kind of a it's very uh, it's, local conditions here are very important to understand why the conservatives are not doing so well. So that might not be a sign about, you know, Poiliev's leadership or what's happening with the conservatives in general in, in Ontario, for example, but it should serve as a, a warning for them in terms of how they will play their cards in terms of trying to, you know, uh, maybe impose some candidates from the outside if they try to do that to riding associations, uh, even if it's not done explicitly. Um, you know, this is always a risk in politics, and, and in that case, I think it... Uh, um, it created some problems for them, but they, it seems that they will be able to salvage this and keep yes. that seat. But the yeah. liberals are very happy because now they are competitive in the riding where they should not have been. It's always nice on a Monday night to be able to talk about something new in politics. There are four by-elections going on across Canada tonight, two in Manitoba, one in Ontario, one in Quebec, in Montreal, where the Liberals have already won. It looks like they're going to win uh, one of those Manitoba ridings as well, Winnipeg South Centre, where Ben Carr uh, appears to have been elected. So Anna Ganey and Ben Carr will be new Liberal MPs in Oxford, uh, where there was a bit of a skirmish within the Conservative Party itself between uh, the former MP there, Dave McKenzie, who stepped down, and uh, his replacement, who was parachuted in by the uh, polia by the Conservatives, uh, he seems to have hung on. So they seem to have hung on to that seat. Kind of the more interesting story tonight was um, in Portage Lisger, where Maxime Bernier, Manitoban that he's not, uh, was running for the PPC, the People's Party, in that riding because they did really well in the last federal election, 22% of the vote. Well, tonight he got trounced. Uh, he got about 18% of the vote. And according to a social media, he's talked about wanting to run there again in the next federal election, which seems like a really bad idea. And uh, he said in his speech that the PPC are the new reform party, the mainstream media are canceling us. It's always nice. Uh, uh, Daniel Bellon is with us. He's a professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, I, I remember covering Maxime Bernier when he was foreign affairs minister. I remember seeing him in Afghanistan, of all places. Yeah. You can imagine the man he is today to that yeah. person who they put in, put in that job when he was defense minister. Um, I mean, it feels like his career is over at this point. I, I don't see where he goes from here after getting you know, yeah. trashed well, <laughs> in, in Manitoba. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, as you may have heard, there will be a by-election in Calgary Heritage on July That's 24th, right. so maybe you will run there, you know, you never know. <laughs>
Just joking, but uh, well, you never know. Uh, you but, never know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, this is yeah. You know, Maxime Bernier. Uh, uh, first of all, when he was a cabinet minister, I mean, he had a lot of problems. You remember <laughs> with his girlfriend and the biker friends yes, and all I, the. <laughs> I remember. I remember it well. Yes. Early, uh, um, and and then of course he lost the conservative leadership and. Um, against Andrew Scheer, and that was really, he, were, he, he almost became the leader, right? It was very, he very did. tight race. Uh, but after that, he decided to create his own party. Um, and, um, you know, I think during the pandemic, there was some, you know, that, that helped his party in a way, and the leadership of um, uh, the, the the fact that, um, you know, the, the conservatives and during the 2021 campaign, decided to move more towards the center uh, under a Renault tool. Uh, that helped him. Um, but, but now, you know, with Pierre Poilievre as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and no longer this debate about public health measures and so forth, um, you know, what are the issues left for him, really, to, uh, uh, to use uh, in terms of basically seducing conservative voters, because that's what the, his party is about, or people who don't vote at all normally, right? Um, and, and so it, it's, it's very difficult, and I think tonight was really a humiliating defeat for him. Uh, not just that he lost, but again, p- weaker score than uh, the, the People's Party candidate at the last uh, federal election in, in that riding. So that can be good when you're the leader of a party. It's been, Danielle, uh, it's been such a tough winter session for the Liberals with the China stuff, then now with the Bernardo issue. I mean, it, you just can't, sometimes you forget how many things have gone wrong yeah. for the Liberal government in this in this winter session. Uh, they did okay tonight. They held their two seats. I mean, these were two relatively simple seats to hold yeah. on to. Uh, but how bad, how bad a winter session do you think it's been? Yeah, not that great, that's for sure. <laughs> Especially yeah. all the discussion about Chinese interference. Um, and and that's not over. I mean, the, all this, you know, that David Johnston episode, the special rapporteur and all that, that was really, um, frankly, a gong show and, and, and bad for, for the liberals. I mean, you look at the polls, they are not that far behind the, the conservatives. If you look at the average of, of polls, you know, a few, three, four points behind and so forth. Uh, and if we had elections, you know, general elections, uh, federal elections tomorrow, you know, it's not sure that the conservatives will win, and certainly they they will be very unlikely to uh, to have a majority of seats. So, um, so you know, it's um, I think it could be worse for them, considering all the things that are happening, and you compare that with the polling numbers in terms of the, the party itself. Um, so, we'll see if the conservatives can take advantage of all this you know, because, I mean, the thing about foreign interference is important, but in terms of the next federal elections, we don't know where it will be, the next general elections. You know, it could be any later this year, 2024. I mean, officially, you know, the fixed election date is only in October 2025, but we might have federal elections before that. Um, But, you know, um, it's not that... The, the the conservatives are really pulling ahead in such a way that you know the the there's no hope for the liberals to stay in power. 
after the next federal election. So, um, you know, there is still quite a bit of uncertainty, especially about what will happen in, in Ontario. So, um, yeah. and that's why what's happening in Oxford tonight, um, you know, the, the, the Conservatives cannot afford to make mistakes in Ontario and, like, having these internal fights within the riding association and having the former MP of your party endorsing the candidate of the other party. This, you yeah, don't, don't want, want these that. things to happen uh, in the context of a general election, in, in, especially if it happens in, in several ridings. So they should avoid these things moving forward because that's really, uh, really not good for, for them uh, uh, in terms of their image. And also, um, you know, the... the the I would say the base and people who work in these riding associations they they want to have a say, and if you parachute these candidates and the way it was done, uh, I think this is something that uh, they should be uh, more careful about moving forward. Certainly, Danielle, thank you so much. Have a nice night. You too. Take care. Let's head to New Brunswick now because this is a story that you may have seen over the last little while. There's been some real turmoil within New Brunswick's Conservative government and for Premier Blaine Higgs um, over proposed changes to rules for schools and, quote, recognizing the role of parents in questions around gender identity. The former policy brought in, by the way, by the same Higgs-led Conservative government back in 2020 said teachers must respect all children's chosen names and pronouns regardless of age and that it should be up to the student whether the parents were informed. Earlier this month, the province's education minister, with the support of the premier, announced that changes to the policy would be made that would take effect on July the 1st. And it says children under 16 would have to have parental consent to alter their names and pronouns at school. It also removes a reference to students being allowed to participate in activities, quote, consistent with their gender identity. So in some ways, you're telling kids under 16, your parents are going to know, no matter what. Now, Part of what they said is that they're going to, you know, they would have to meet with a counselor and so forth. Part of the issue with that is there, there are no, there are barely any counselors in New Brunswick schools. It's a bit of a, bit of a red herring. Um, so what exactly is going on here? Well, the prime minister, of course, was quick to call out Blaine Higgs and Blaine Higgs was quick to reply. Here they are. Trans kids in New Brunswick are being told they don't have the right to be their true selves, that they need to ask permission. Well, trans kids need to feel safe, not targeted by politicians. It's unfortunate the Prime Minister uh, wouldn't look at the big picture and understand that families, parents play a role in the children's upbringing. So there is the Prime Minister, of course, and uh, New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs. Well, up until late last week, Dorothy Shepard was a cabinet minister in Blaine Higgs' government. She is no longer. She has resigned over many things, including this whole uh, uh, this whole fight over what is known as Policy 713. Um, and she was Social Development Minister. She's resigned. She's still the MLA for St. John Lancaster. And uh, she joins me now. Dorothy Shepard, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, perhaps just walk us through a bit, because I think a lot of people sort of, you know, provincial politics, if you're in another province, you sort of cast a, maybe cast a glance at the headlines and so on. Uh, but tell me a bit about, about about 713, because I think people have been seeing the number. They have an idea of what it refers to, pronouns and schools and the debate over it. But it, it's an existing law that came in under your own government and then was switched is that or is being reviewed. Is that right? It, it, it is. It was a, a policy that was brought in uh, in by our government. The premier felt that there were some concerns around it, so wanted to have it reviewed. What does it entail? What did the original policy allow for? Policy speaks to 
providing a safe, welcoming and uh, environment for, for those who are gender diverse. And so what it was, was a tool for educators to, um, to use in their schools to, to provide that safe and welcoming environment and a, a way to help guide them in implementing the policy. The, the biggest um, crux seemed to be with regards to uh, the Premier and the Minister of Education was that there was uh, an ability for a student to use a, a name or pronoun in school without parents knowing. Now, I think it's really important to note that there was, um, you know, um, section 6.1.1, uh, 6.1.2, sorry, where a student could, um, you know, could use their, their pronoun, uh, a new pronoun uh, or name with, um, with permission from their parents. And a second section that stated that if, if parental permission wasn't possible, then there was a, a process, to, you know, a policy to, to, uh, to, for a child to continue using that. There was some angst about that, thinking that parents were, were not being informed. And it really wasn't about parental rights, because as, as the Premier talked about, the policy spoke to the protection of children. And so anyhow, it became a, a big issue. It wasn't the sole issue or reason that I decided to tender my resignation from Cabinet. Right. Um, but it, it was, for me, the last straw. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting, I guess just because it, there's been so much focus, not necessarily on, on Blaine Higgs's ruling, you know, way of way of running a government, but more about this specific issue, uh, was that it had been in place for such a short period of time, part of which, of course, covered when I gather a lot of students weren't in school because of COVID, that I was just wondering whether we, around the cabinet table, there was ever any discussion of whether it was working or not, because it seems like you wouldn't have had a lot of time to figure out if it was if it was a success or there were really grounds for concern. The fact that it it came to came to rise so quickly and really um, without a lot of preamble was really the a concern for me and um, and partly why uh, I I believe that the conversation needed to be needed to be broader. And look, we had some really good conversations about it, but it still did not go in a direction that I felt strengthened the policy. In fact, I feel the policy was watered down. And as, as an individual around the cabinet table and caucus, I, I truly felt that um, the concerns were not validated, they were dismissed. And so it, it is, again, my that, that's the impetus for, for why I tendered my resignation from cabinet. I felt that I couldn't accomplish anything more under this premier. And, um, and so the work needs to be done. And I felt it was my, uh, you know, my obligation really to step down so that the work could be carried on and hopefully, um, you know, taken over the finish line. Right. When one looks at um, the reaction from the premier to you submitting your resignation, I think there was a letter that you've shared now that was written uh, a little while back that voices some concerns and sort of the preamble to what's just happened in your case. Uh, we've seen a bit of sort of the back and forth between the prime minister and the premier that sort of, I think, given uh, people out, out far outside, far away from New Brunswick, a bit of a, a glimpse into into a leadership style that's pretty combative. Um when, when you look at, at, at the impact of all that, I mean, is what's going on here, I guess, is the question. Is this really politics or is there is it all politics or are there fundamental concerns about policy, the 713, the way it's working? I don't know if it's politics. Personally, right. for me, it feels like it's more of a personal agenda. And um, I'm not in government 
to put forward my personal agendas. I'm here to work for the people of the province. And so for me, this really now is about trying to trying to go forward, acknowledge the struggles and the the difficulties that we have and um, and see if there's a, see if there's a way to to get beyond it. It is it is up to our leaders to keep us um, to keep us open to what our public needs. And I believe that public schools need a public policy that speaks to every child. And so almost always policy is about protecting the minority. Right. And, and that's what I believe policy 713 did. And I believe it's been watered down now. Dorothy Shepard is the MLA for St. John Lancaster in New Brunswick. She was until late last week, the social development minister in Blaine Higgs's conservative government. Uh, resigning is always a big deal, as you well know. I think there was a lot made of sort of uh, the back and forth, some of the, some of the tension within uh, the government over this issue and others. Uh, resigning is always a, a big move, though, isn't it? I mean, you were health minister through COVID. You've, you've, you've been on some big files. Stepping away is a big move. It sure is. I, I loved being Minister of Health. I loved being Minister of Social Development and twice now that I filled that role. I've always known that my power has been around the cabinet table, around the caucus table and in the legislature. But I also love being the MLA. So the one thing that can't be taken away from me, except by the people of this province and by, the, by my writing, is that job of an MLA. So it wasn't easy. Um, I will miss the work. I love doing the work. And uh, but now I will have more time to focus on my constituents and uh, and continue to do a job for them. You mentioned in that letter that was shared uh, that you released that was written uh, uh, about 18 months ago, I guess I'm trying to get my math right here. I apologize. I think it was 2021 or late 2021 um, when you spoke to to the premier about some of these concerns that you had. Uh, This is not a new complaint. I think this happens, you know, different premiers have different leadership styles, Uh, but it was a pretty blunt letter to, you know, some of it was, was very blunt about, you know, the need to consult, the need to trust the people around you in your own government. And the fact that, that, you know, a, a provincial government or a federal government, for that matter, is not a corporation to be run by a CEO. That's not how it works, right? What? How has that manifested itself for over over the, over since then, uh, in terms of the kind of government style that we've been seeing? Well, it's it's unfortunate because I've never wanted to embarrass anyone. I've never wanted to, you know, I've never wanted to take things like this public. I, I worked, tried very hard uh, to make sure that I didn't have to, but you know, I don't walk away from tough conversations. I have lived through many tough conversations as Minister of Health and Minister of Social Development. I, um, I believe that I have, you know, an ability to work with all kinds of personalities. It's one of my strengths. And, um, and so I just felt that it was necessary for me to show that I have made every effort that I could, you know, to try to be a team player. And frankly, I don't feel there ever has been a team because that's, um, you know, that's kind of the way I believe the premier wanted it. And so um, I did as much as I could for as long as I could. And then when the barriers began to be put in front of me to accomplish things I needed to do, I believe the work is too important and that it was time for me to, um, you know, to hopefully give it to someone else who might, uh, who might have his confidence more uh, to, get, to get the things done that need to be done. It, it, it's too important for it not to be done. 
Of course, I'm sure people will look at this and think about this this top down and try to figure out on what files were there, you know, was were, was there interference? Because you've had a few very high profile files nationally uh, since when, when you were minister of health. Particularly, uh, there was the neurological uh, d- disease issue. There was obviously COVID and some of the rules that New Brunswick took. I mean, did you feel the opportunity in your position to? Did you need have the freedom that you needed on all those files? On on much of the health files, I believe that I really had an ability to work to lead the department, uh, especially on on you know COVID was was very much a government response, mm-hmm. and um, and I was proud to be a part of it. The last couple of years, though, since October twenty one, since since um, since sharing that my thoughts with the premier, it hasn't been easy. I have um, it has been very difficult to um, to lead anything. It has mostly been led through the premier's office. And in the last couple of months, um, shall I say, it has been it has been ridden with barriers. You know, everyone's style is different, and um, I just felt that if I didn't have his confidence any longer, um, I just shouldn't be there. So, what now? What happens? I mean, it, it clearly, this the seven thirteen. There's been now a vote to try and have it reviewed. I gather first before any major changes are made. But uh, the premier has said at some point this is something he's willing to fight an election over. But I'm not sure that's still uh, on the table or not. It feels like I mean it's summer, so people are going to stop paying too much attention to all of this for a little while at least. But it feels like things are pretty rocky right now, and and, and that uh, you know the, the government itself is 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 in a real struggle. Yes, and it's unfortunate because we have a lot of very important things to talk about um, in New Brunswick. Our, our growing economy and our, our immigration files are, are expanding. We have, um, you know, the Irving Oil Refinery that has certainly made comments on, uh, on their future. So I think there's a lot for us to discuss in this province, and I want to do that in a collaborative way. That's why I, I want to stay in caucus. I want to be able to contribute and uh, support my colleagues in the work that they do. And it will only be telling in the next weeks and months to come as to really what's going to happen. And, and you know, I, d- I don't foresee an election, but that's not my call. Right. And, and, you've, and you've at one point said that you wouldn't run again if, if uh, Mr. Higgs was still the leader of your party. Do you still stay? Is that still where, where you stand or, or, or is there a room for negotiation there? Well, I don't I don't. I haven't been presented with any other alternative, really. Right. I haven't been reached out to. I haven't been spoken to in the last few weeks about the issues at hand uh, to understand if there was uh, opportunity. So I'm left with thinking there isn't. I believe it will. It will. If I if I want to run again, it will probably need to be under a different leader. Right. Well, Dorothy Shepard, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. 